we're going to read from God's Word this morning. And uh, it is Acts 3, starting at verse 11 and going through for 21. I'm so sorry about the state of my voice this morning. I've usually got a voice of an angel, but I've got a bit of the logy, so, you know, bear with. <laughs> All right. It's going to be on the screen if you haven't got um, the Bible with you. Uh, no problem. We're going to read it now. Peter speaks to the onlookers. While the, ma- sorry, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to him in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. Probably how you pronounce it. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by your own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. That's cool that bit, isn't it? You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked what a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That's a great bit. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. 21. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. We're going to read a, uh, a little bit more and if I can find it. It is Acts 4 starting at verse 7. Just over the page. And it says, that had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Amen. Great. Thank you. And uh, good morning and uh, welcome to everyone uh, today. Um, our topic today is, is, about, uh, um, is about faith and Christian faith and how can we insist on it being um, uh, any superior or better or to anything else. So I want to welcome first of all anybody who's here, whether you're of no faith or of lots of faith, whether you have once had faith um, or you're of another faith. It's just fantastic that you're amongst us, they're with us. <laughs> And uh, we hope you'll find this morning uh, really, really helpful. And uh, the question uh, was a question that I was asked on the day I graduated as a, with a, cell, a, a biology um, a PhD. And my dad sat me down as I was about to f- head off on another course in life, um, which would involve getting involved in church and all of that. And he just said, how can you know that you're right? 
You know, how can you insist that this Christian thing is right? And it's a big, big question uh, for many of us. And uh, we live in a world that says that surely that's an arrogant attitude to think that your religion is somehow superior to any other and that you should try and convince and convert someone uh, to what you believe. You know, surely that is an intolerant attitude and, uh, and, and not the way that the world works. You know, surely all religions are equally good, uh, the argument goes, or equally bad, if that's your view, um, but at least uh, equally valid for those that would follow um, their faith um, and whatever that looks like. But what matters for many people is just believe in God and be kind to people. And as long as you do those two things, it doesn't really matter on the detail. Surely that's all that, that's really important. The fact is that we live in a world that actually sees religion as a major problem. It sees religion as a problem to peace in our world, um, especially if there's this kind of superiority attitude. And so we see leaders around the world of all sorts uh, trying different approaches to try and um, deal with the divisiveness of, of religion because look at all the wars that it causes. Look at all the problems it causes. And so some people have tried to outlaw religion. Some have tried to condemn religion or at least educate people out of it um, or to radically privatize it um, in people's lives because people see that divisiveness. We only have to look at the troubles in Northern Ireland to say, look at the mess that religion causes. Look at the problems of war uh, around our world today with people with different factions and different ideas thinking their one's better than someone else's. Surely it's a problem. But when we look at people who've tried to outlaw uh, religion, uh, Alistair McGrath points out that ironically, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. Um, in attempting to outlaw religion. Um, those that tried to do it ended up being the most intolerant and the most violent themselves, whether it was Stalinism, whether it was Nazism, uh, all sorts of different views. The atheistic view has ended up, ironically, causing as many problems as they were trying to solve in what they thought they were going to do. And because of the vitality of religious faith, particularly Christian faith, we saw the communists, as we've seen in the recent weeks in the series we did, pushing out the, the Western missionaries from China, and yet it forced it underground, and we had the biggest revival um, that this planet has seen uh, in the last 50 years. Um, and so people try to outlaw it and think maybe that doesn't work in the long term. So people try and condemn it or at least realizing that they can't control it governmentally, they try to educate people out of it, make it socially unacceptable, if you like, to discourage it um, through that. And perhaps we live in a society that sees much of that. You know, how can you claim to have the truth and try and convert others uh, to that? So the mantra goes, can't we find ways to urge all of our citizens, whatever their religious beliefs, to admit that each religion or faith is just one of many valid paths to God and ways to live? And unlike the first approach, this is actually probably a lot more successful uh, in our culture, in our society. But ultimately, it is unlikely to work because it is based on false premises and false and flawed arguments. Arguments such as, you know, surely all religions, major religions, are equally valid and basically teach the same thing, is a flawed argument. We'll come to it. Perhaps each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole. Again, actually a flawed argument. Or it's arrogant to insist your religion is right and convert others to it. So these are the questions that we're looking at today um, as part of this series. And the third approach, although they sound really plausible, um, as I say, they do fall short. 
The other approach is just to privatize it, radically privatize it. What you believe in your own home is fine, but please don't bring it into work. Don't bring it into the public sphere. Um, but actually, for anybody who is a Christian, because it is so core to who we are, it affects our values, it affects our vision of life, our purpose of life. It is always going to affect uh, our every part of our lives rather than being just kept to the private sphere. And therefore, it is controversial. Um, it is controversial because people see it as being divisive in society. So where do Christians get their notion from? Um, well, the New Testament, uh, from the words of Jesus himself and the teaching uh, of the apostles. So let's take a look at some of the radical teaching of Jesus and the apostles, and then we'll look a little bit wider at other religions and how we are respectful of other peoples um, and other faiths um, as Christians. So first of all, Jesus himself very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me uh, in John's gospel. So he claims to be the way to God, and he claims to be the only way to God. And so when Peter and John healed this crippled man that we've read um, in, the, uh, in the passage in Acts 4, this large crowd gathers. And so Peter starts to proclaim to them um, this Jesus. And he says of him that he is the author of life. Okay, think about that for a moment. The author of life. Okay, the creator of all things. Um, he was crucified, now resurrected and glorified. And so they're arrested and they're put on trial. Um, and they're asked, by what power did this crippled man, this lame man, get healed? And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God, declares that it was by the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth. And he goes on and he says that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is absolutely clear that Jesus is the only name by which we can be saved. And that is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Paul, for example, uh, writes this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And then in the book of Hebrews, we have this. Um, you know, there's talking of Jesus, that there's no other means of escape. He warns them. And he says with this rhetorical question, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So that is the claim of Jesus. That is the claim of the New Testament, that he is the only way to God. But on what basis can he make that claim? You know, what makes Jesus unique? Well, first of all, he's unique in his qualification, in his divine credentials, if you like, because he claims to be God. Peter proclaims Jesus as the holy and righteous one. Okay, the holy and righteous one. That is God, the author of life, as we've just looked at. He is the one the prophets foretold. This has been predicted for thousands of years that, Christ, that God would send his Christ, his Savior, his Messiah, and he is literally fulfilled in this person, Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the one that the early church worship as God. And so it makes him entirely different to all the other leaders of the great religions. You know, no one in, um, in Islam would ever dream of giving Muhammad divine honor. Okay? They wouldn't dream of that. They would be the first to say that is utter blasphemy, that even suggesting that. Okay, and with Buddhism, it's not even clear that they believed in a god. Um, you know, early Buddhism certainly had no god. Um, but we read the, uh, the words of the Jews in John chapter 10, verse 33, where the Jews say of Jesus, we are stoning you for blasphemy. 
this very thing because you a mere man claim to be God and uh, and when Thomas the, the, skeptic, the skeptic doubting Thomas won't believe that Jesus is alive uh, after the resurrection he says I want to put my hands in his wounds and when Jesus eventually appears to him and he does he says my Lord and my God okay and he calls him my God and, and Jesus doesn't say that's a bit over the top Thomas he says why are you so slow to believe so clearly religions don't teach all the same thing they certainly don't teach the same thing about the character of God and they certainly don't teach the same thing about who the person of Jesus is but Jesus claim is to be God and he claims that if you've seen him then we've seen what God is like that he is the epitome he's the everything of God's character uh, in human form and it's in his name that this guy has just been healed that's the authority of God um, that he has so he's unique in his qualifications he's also unique in his achievement Um, as Peter puts it salvation's found in no one else there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved Every one of us needs a saviour. Why? Because, as we've sung this morning, every one of us has fallen short. We have sinned. We, um, we do have shame in our lives. And we can't save ourselves from the results of sin. We find ourselves separated uh, from God. And uh, none of the other religions um, claim to have a saviour. Um, so, you know, Buddha, for example, is thought of as a teacher, not as a saviour. Uh, Muhammad is regarded as a prophet, not as a saviour. In Islam, you know, sinners face God's judgment without forgiveness. There's maybe a hope that their good might outweigh their bad, but there's nothing to deal with the bad. There's nothing to deal with the the stain of sin and uh, what sin causes in our hearts and in our lives. Um, And yet, in Christianity, we have Jesus who is a saviour, the one who's given his life to remove sin from us completely. Um, He brings salvation through his death on the cross. He saves us from our guilt. He cancels the debt. He purifies us. He rescues us from and breaks the power of the addictive pattern of sin in our lives that enslaves us. And he saves us from the judgment that we will all face. He is absolutely unique in what he's achieved for humanity. Um, But he's also unique in the resurrection. The resurrection is a unique thing in history. Okay, as Peter writes here, he says, he says of him, he says, one whom God raised from the dead. You know, and I know that trips off our tongues if we're Christians and in church and stuff. But actually, just think about it for a moment. God raised him from the dead. Okay, it's not that he's just come back from the dead. He's gone through death and out the other side. Okay, it is unique in human history. And it is central to the Christian faith. Because of that, we know that he truly does have power over sin and of death. And because he's alive, we can know him. You can't know all the other, you know, any of the other great religious leaders. They're they're dead and buried. You can know about them. But Jesus' claim is that we can know him because he's alive. And so Jesus is uniquely God become man. He is... uh, He's uniquely saviour, the only one to deal with sin. He's uniquely raised from the dead. And so he's the only way to God. But it doesn't fit the world view. Okay? It's the preferred view of many doesn't fit with that. And it's, so it causes as much problems today as it did in Jesus' day. And so cultures try to outlaw it or condemn it or educate people out of it or restrict it just to the private, not into the public. And if you don't believe in the Christian faith, 
arguably that is very understandable. That makes total sense. Um, in fact, we even read of a character, Paul, who was known as Saul in the book of Acts, who is exactly like that. And he just thought the only thing to do was to get rid of this Christian faith. You know, this new movement that started. And he, you know, he outlawed it, he condemned it, put people to death, put people in prison, and certainly tried to kind of limit it, its influence on society until he encounters Jesus himself. And then it's changed as a result. So in the New Testament, we have this claim of ultimate truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. So what then about other religions? How do we approach uh, other faiths and other philosophies? Because um, there are actually some parts of, of other faiths and other religions that are actually <laughs> quite challengingly good in what we see. We see some incredible hospitality uh, from people. We see uh, incredible commitment and devotion um, and dedication, and it, sometimes that challenges our own hearts and our own lives. But in fact, we would expect to see something of good um, even in other religions, because the Bible teaches us general revelation that, um, that actually there's, there's good in the whole of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And the pinnacle of his creation is human life. And uh, there may be many in this world who are unsure. There may be many in this world who would call themselves agnostic, but apparently it's less than 5% of the world population who would say they're full, fully blown um, atheists. Okay? The majority of people believe there's something else. They might not know what, but they believe there's something else. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that they are without excuse. And so as we look at our world and even at other religions, parts of that, we will see something um, that is good uh, in our world. Secondly, we're made in the image of God, every human being. And so we, we are given a conscience. Okay? Our conscience is not you know, perfect, but we have a sense of right and wrong. We have a sense of, of, of making wise and good decisions uh, in life. As Paul put it in, uh, in Romans, he talks of the Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do the things required by the law. Okay? Because they, it's in their conscience to do the right things. And so we see that um, in people. So it's not surprising that the essence of the golden rule, which is um, where Jesus says, you know, do to others as, they would, as you would have them do to you, Matthew 7, that actually we find that in many kind of the religions from Confucius onwards, 500 BC onwards is in there. Most people in this world would go along with that. I think that's a great thing to have. You know, whether they're of faith or of absolutely no faith. You know, because there's a sense of a moral compass that is built into us as human beings. And then thirdly, we read in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has set eternity in the human heart. There is a sense of people are hungry for God in our world. People know deep down that materialism is not the answer. There's an emptiness uh, within it. And so there's this built-in sense that there must be more to life. And so this God-shaped gap in the heart of every human being is very real. But is God-shaped, not religion-shaped. And sometimes we get confused on that. But it's a hunger that drives us to search for God. So we will see many good things in the lives of people of other faith. Some of that will challenge our own uh, lives. Um, but it also explains why there's a sense of continuity for those who come from another faith into the Christian faith. Um, even in the New Testament, we read of God-fearing men and women 
who, um, uh, who become Christians. They kind of find the fulfillment. They're God-fearing before, but they come into relationship with Jesus um, somewhere along the line. Um, here's a quote from uh, Leslie Newbigin. He was a, a bishop in Southeast India for about 40 years. So many people come to Christian faith from other religions. And he says, an element of continuity which is confirmed in the experience of many who have come, become converts to Christianity from other religions. Even though their conversion involves a radical discontinuity, you know, very clear, dramatic, they've come to Christian faith, yet there is often the strong conviction afterwards that it was the living and true God who is dealing with them in the days of their pre-Christian wrestlings. As they look back and as they, you know, maybe, you know, we hear about people having dreams and all sorts of things, that God engaging with them and speaking with them, even in the context of their other faith, it's at that that brings them on the journey to understand the true God. You know, as, as Christians, perhaps, we might understand that, you know, somebody from a Jewish background is not necessarily choosing Ju- Judaism, drop everything Jewish and start becoming a Christian alone. But actually, it's a fulfillment of what they already were part of, you know. And there's that sense of they, they become messianic Jews. You know, Jesus was Jewish. Um, and so there's that sense of that. And that's one end of the spectrum. And it obviously varies depending what religion we're looking at. But um, a metaphor I found quite helpful is if when you're helping people of other faiths, you know, somebody's likened it to being somebody at the, the back of a dark cave and all they've got is a little candle. That's the light they have. And perhaps it's our job to, to, to lead them towards the mouth of the cave where the true light is. But don't blow out the little light they do have um, straight away. Now that's all they have to find the way out. And often God uses that um, to speak into people's lives. Okay. So it's actually illogical to conclude that all religions are equally true and that all religions lead to God. Uh, for a start, some religions don't believe there is a God. So they, they can't be equally true as ones that do. There are some that believe there are many gods and some believe there's one God. They can't both be equally true. Um, Likewise, a religion that says, um, yeah. So with everything, there's a sense that because we're fallen human beings, we don't get everything right. There's, there's, there's truth, there's error in all of that. And in fact, none of us on our own can find God. That's the whole folly of any religion. And what Christianity is about is that God has made the move towards us, that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And it's against Jesus that we measure everything to look for the truth and the error. And so we might find that actually the reality is that Christians are not infallible. Okay? Our understanding of truth is not infallible, but our revelation of God's revelation in Jesus is infallible. And it's against that that you compare everything. So you might find some darkness, uh, dark aspects of another religion. There may also be a dark side to the way that some people use Christianity. Okay? Uh, but there is no dark side when we look at the God's revelation in who Jesus is. So the old argument that used to go, and you've, you may have come across this, is the elephant and the blind men. Um, and the idea is that there's these blind men walking around and they come across an elephant. They've never come across an elephant in their lives and the elephant's happy for them to touch him and all the rest of it. So the first comes along and he says, well, this creature, this new creature he's come across is like a snake as he feels the trunk. He says, it's long and it's flexible. It's just like a snake. That's, that's what this new creature is like. And the second one says, not at all, it's thick and round, it's like a tree trunk, you know, as he feels the elephant's leg. 
And then the third one says, no, 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 you got it completely wrong. It's large and flat, you know, as he touches the elephant's side and so on. And, and each blind man can only feel a part and because none can imagine the whole. So that's the only concept they have. And so the argument goes, so it is with the religion. You know, all of us, all religions grasp just a part of spiritual reality, but none can see the whole elephant and claim to have that comprehensive vision of the truth. It sounds logical, but it isn't. It's an argument that totally backfires because the story is told not from the blind person's point of view, but it's told from somebody who can see the whole thing. So if you take that illustration and use the argument, you're actually saying somebody can see the whole thing. The sculptor can see the whole thing. The photographer of this picture can see the whole thing. So it's only, you only know they can only see part if you know the whole thing. And so what that illustration does is it says somebody can see the whole thing. And, uh, and so how could you possibly know that religion, that no religion can see the whole truth unless yourself have that superior, comprehensive knowledge of a spiritual reality that you just claim nobody can have. Okay? It's just not logical. And to say that it's arrogant to insist your religion is right is also a folly. Nobody would say of the photographer, that's arrogant. That's what he's taking a picture of. That's the reality. Now, we all know the elephant is the whole elephant. Okay? It's not arrogant to say it um, at all. But the skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to that superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But that in itself is a faith stance. It's a stance that says, that's what I believe. I believe that no religion, no one religion can have that proper view. And so it's in itself, it becomes that exclusive superior claim that they've got knowledge that none of the religions have. Um, and therefore, if you have that belief that no one can be right, how can you be right? It just is illogical when you actually follow it through. And actually, the reality is we know we all hate arrogance. Arrogance is, a, is an ugly sin um, in, in anybody's life. And when we come to the scriptures, when we come to these claims of Jesus, it's not with arrogance, but it's actually with great humility. You know, we bring our own lives that, that want to go our own way, and we bring them under this, this uh, kind of amazing claim that Jesus makes, that he is Lord of all, that he is the one. And it's with incredible humility that every person needs to come before that. And uh, the heart of the uniqueness of Jesus, and hence Christianity, why it is unique, isn't that it's better than something else. It's not a better set of rules. It's not a better set of philosophies or principles. But it's the only way to deal with the real human problem. As somebody said, you know, the, problem of the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's that selfish, independent living, and nothing else deals with that. The Bible calls it sin. It's our shame, it's our inherent tendency not to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And the clear teaching in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament too is that forgiveness of sin requires a payment. Okay? Real forgiveness is always costly, and real love is a personal exchange. Firstly, real forgiveness is always costly. You know, whenever you break anything, if you break a window here, somebody's got to pay. The school pay, or the church might pay, or you have to pay. Okay, if you have a car collision, you know, you pay, or the culprit pays, or you know, the insurers pay, which is your premium, so somebody else has paid anyway. Okay, that's just how it works. But so it is with a broken relationship. You know, it costs us. You absorb the relational debt um, that is owed for all of the wrongdoing. 
Um, in fact, forgiveness is the only way that we stop evil spreading around our world. It's that powerful. But it also makes it incredibly hard because you have to bear the cost. Great forgiveness for something done really wrong to you is incredibly costly to do. Um, but we do it so we can then reach out and look for transformation in someone's life. But um, as you go through that, there's that sense of death, of loss, you, know, you giving up your rights, um, but you come through that into a resurrection and to a new place. But you still experience the pain of it. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he absorbs that pain. He absorbs that violence and the evil of the world into himself. And it's absolutely critical to remember that it's not God punishing someone else, but that Jesus, the Christian claim is and understanding is that Jesus is God. That it's God himself bearing the punishment in his body and bearing the sin of the world. He offers his own life so that someday he can destroy all evil um, without destroying us. So real forgiveness is always costly and real love is a personal exchange. You know, whenever you give into someone's life, whenever you uh, step into someone's life with needs, then there's the strength that goes from you. It costs us something. Um, and likewise, um, you know, if you're a parent, you'll know this if you're a parent, you know, your kids come into the world as totally dependent on you. And the only way that you're going to get them through to being self-sufficient and independent one day is for you to give up your freedoms. And if you're a parent, that's what you're currently doing. You're giving up all of your freedoms so that they can become independent later on. So somebody has to step in. And all life-changing love towards people has a substitutional sacrifice involved in it. And, uh, and so John Stott writes of this in his book, The Cross of Christ, how you know, the substitution is at the heart of the Christian message, that someone has stepped in, that Jesus has stepped in to pay the price for us. He trades his life for ours. And so the, the essence of sin on the left is that I put myself where God should be. Okay? The crown there where God should be is that I've got me in there. And I'm going to live life my way. Okay? That's the essence of sin. I put myself where God should be. The essence of salvation is God puts himself where we deserve. And so Jesus comes and he dies on the cross so that he can then take the place in the crown. He can now start to lead our lives because we've been forgiven and he can now lead us forward. The only one who lived a sinless life because he was God and claims to be God and he has the authority to prove it through his life and his works and his words and he takes our place. He's absolutely unique. Let's pray together. As we come to this uh, in our own lives, that we're, given, we're given a life to respond to this, to respond to his love, um, to all that he's done for us. And it's just simply asking him to forgive us and to begin leading our lives. It's not something he pushes on anyone, but he longs for every one of us to know him. And he freely offers us something called eternal life, which is a quality of life and it's a quantity of life. And uh, this morning, it may be that you've just never responded to that. You've never realized or you've not come to that point. And here's a simple prayer you can pray that just acknowledges what Jesus has done on the cross for you in asking for his forgiveness and asking him to lead your life. So here's just something you can echo quietly in your own heart, um, a prayer. Father God, I, I'm sorry for 
the things I've got wrong, for, for putting myself in the crown, for living life my way. I thank you that you gave your life for me, that you died the death to take my place that I need not. And I ask you now to forgive me. And please come and lead my life. I want you to be in that crown. I want you to take your place of leading my life forward. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you've prayed that just even quietly and meant it with all of your heart, God has already begun to take up residence in your life. And just with our eyes closed now, just with our, our hearts still, um, if that's something that you've just, just echoed in your own heart, then just as, a, as an acknowledgement to God, really, um, just catch my eye. Just look up and catch my eye to say, yeah, I've, I've prayed that. Okay. And you can look down again. Yeah. Yeah. Father, I just thank you for each one of them. I pray that, that this be a start of a journey today. Uh, you would uh, just fill them with, with a joy and, uh, and a new sense of freedom, Lord, as you lead them in their lives. Amen. I'm going to take a, a song now. It's quite... Um 